good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Sunday Times bestselling author Jane Corey, whose latest thriller, Coming to Find You, was published last month. Jane, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you for having me. So a, a typical murder mystery will start with a crime and then there'll be an investigation and maybe there's a trial and possibly a conviction. But you actually begin after all that's already happened. You begin moments after a conviction. Tell us a little bit about the situation at the beginning of the novel and, and why you chose to kind of turn the typical structure on its head. Well, as a writer, I often think the story happens after someone is convicted and what happens to them then and what led up to it. So I chose to show the fear that somebody might have if someone close to them is sent to prison and if they then might be pursued by that person's actions. Mm -hmm. And tell, tell us a little bit about, about this main character, Nancy, who um, who's the first the first of the two sort of main characters that we meet. Yes. So so Nancy has a stepbrother who's been sent to prison for a dreadful murder. I mean, basically, he murdered her mother and his father. But as the book progresses, you go back in time and you learn how their relationship built up and what led to this terrible murder. And I don't want to give any plot spoilers here, <laughs> but you begin to see that actually perhaps Nancy is involved more than people realise, but perhaps not in the obvious way that you might think. I like to sew lots of twists, lots of clues. I like to, people to, to take people down one end and actually make them face a different situation from the one that the reader might expect. And so the story starts with Nancy in the Old Bailey, which is a very famous court. And in fact, I've been a couple of times in the spectators gallery to see what it's like to breathe in the atmosphere and, and also just look at the expressions on people's faces. Um, my background was in journalism and I always wanted to work for women's magazines rather than newspapers because I didn't want to handle um, horrible, tragic cases. But as I got older and found I wanted to write novels and get into people's heads where it came to crime, I actually realized that the courtroom can be a different kind of place altogether and, and is very good material. So Nancy is there at the Old Bailey. Her stepbrother has just been sent to prison for life. And the first words in the opening book are her lawyer speaking. And he says, have you got somewhere safe to go? Mm -hmm. And this is the crux of it, because basically the press are after her. They think that she has got something to do with this murder. And the only place that Nancy has to go to is this beautiful house by the sea, an old house, 200 years old, that's been in the family for a while. She hasn't been back since she was a teenager because something happened there and we don't know what happened till the book progresses. Um, and then fast forward a few chapters and we go back in time to 1942 where somebody else lived in the house. And the house, 
is the the bit that that the two characters pivot around. That's their central building block because basically it's the story of two women, two different times in the first in the Second World War and in the present day, both of whom live in the same house at different times, and the house is called Tall Chimneys. Mm-hmm. When when Nancy first gets to to Devon, um, I mean one of the one of the issues I found in this novel is this issue of trust. Um, who mm-hmm. she doesn't know who to, whom to trust. She's not sure she can trust anyone. The reader's not sure whom to trust. Um, which yeah. I, I I love this, you know. And but but when she first arrives, how does how does her experience in the those first few days differ from what she's been used to in London? And how does this idea of trust kind of come into play in those those first few days that she arrives at Tall Chimneys? Well, you're quite right. Trust is always a central issue in all my books. Um, I did plumb some of my own experience. I moved to Devon from London 15 years ago. I found it very different. Um, in London, it, it's more impersonal at times, not always, but but often. In Devon, people, you get to know people, they they learn to trust you, you learn to trust them. As It's a, it's, um, a kind of more... Um, familial way you know you 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 become almost family with your friends and neighbors and to Nancy and to me really it took me time to realize that it took me time to realize that time itself goes slower in someone like Devon and that actually people can be very good friends and that's actually an important part of it so Nancy's scared when she goes down to tall chimneys and the house hasn't been lived in for a couple of years and then her neighbour comes around. And I love writing about old people, older people. Um, I say old people because I'm in my 60s. Um, but I like writing about older people because I think they've just got so many wonderful stories to tell. And I grew up with my grandmother. Or should I say we all grew up with my grandmother, including my parents. And that was a very, very big influence on my life. Um, so I love Vera. Vera goes back to the tail end of the Second World War. And she helps Nancy. So we let's talk about structure for just a second because we we begin with just a few sentences on the night of of the murder um, as almost as a prologue and then periodically through the through the book mm-hmm. we return to that night and and find out a, a little bit more and a little bit more talk yeah. about what you wanted to accomplish narratively by by structuring the novel that way yeah i always do this in my book i i always have an anonymous voice that comes in every now and then or it could be a narrator's voice and it's done in italics it's just a page and it's to wet the reader's appetite it's to give them layers i sometimes think of my books as being like a pastry the type that my husband likes to eat with lots <laughs> of different layers <laughs> and um I build up the layers, telling people a little bit more about what happened on this particular night and going back into people's past so that you're beginning to realise that this dinner party, which was meant to be a family birthday party, is not the joyous event that we might expect. But there are lots of tensions at play here, lots of characters who... Well, actually, not lots of characters. I don't want to tell you how many because I might spoil it. A limited <laughs> number, of, a limited number of characters who all have their own issues with each other. Yeah. So it's tense. I wouldn't want to be that. Put it that way. So the book's told, as you mentioned, it's told in multiple time periods. Um, we have we have Elizabeth during, during World War II, and then we have Nancy in more or less in the present day. Um, mm-hmm. and you've got these different points of view. Well, in terms of just 
process? What was your practical process for sort of keeping everything sorted out and making sure that the two narratives are, are agreeing with each other? Well, I don't get out of my world. My process really is that I write every morning and I am in that world. When I come down from my study for lunch, I'm not really there in the real world. I am literally living it in my head for those um, initial five months when I'll do the first draft. So I knew that I wanted to start off with Nancy. I wanted to start in the present day. I wanted to put her right in the heart of it. And I write Nancy's point of view for five chapters. And then you are suddenly back in the station at Victoria in London and the bombs are ahead, flying over. Yeah, yeah. Our mothers are at the gates seeing their children off to Devon, knowing that they may never see them again. And this sends shivers through me. I grew up with stories about my mother, who was barely nine when the war broke out. And her own mother, my grandmother, died of cancer during the war just three years later. And she was brought up by a great aunt. And my mother would tell these stories again in layers as we grew up. And it wasn't until she died, and she died quite young, that I began to realize how important that time was to people and how the impact goes on from one generation to the next. And as I'm talking to you, I can feel my cheeks almost getting warm because I think it's such an important story that the impact of one generation's actions has this ripple effect that continues. And so in the 1940s timeline, Elizabeth's son has just gone off to war. Um, yes. She's living in, in tall chimneys with her husband, um, and she takes in these two child evacuees. And to me, I'm just sort of building on what you're just saying. The, how, how do you sort of use these things that readers already know about and already have sort of pre-existing emotions about, like World War II, like a son going off to war, like children being taken away from their families, um, and, and sort of leverage that into your own narrative? Okay, so it's character. So I have the plot. But it's character, it's getting into those people. So evacuees is a term. What kind of evacuees? What were they like? So again, I, I remember my mother telling me about how she was sent from London to Gloucestershire. But I also did a lot of research. I thought myself into the characters. But on top of that, I put out feelers around here asking if there might be any evacuees left who were alive. I mean, I, I didn't think there would be. I have found five, five wow. people. Wow. I mean, it was just extraordinary. Um, our local museum helped me find them. And one in particular, who I've become really very good friends with, she's in her mid-90s, and she is the most incredible woman. She's called Ivy. And um, we have stayed friends since I interviewed her for this, and I have tea with her. And she remembers very clearly coming down from London to Devon. And she loved it. She loved being here. Um, many people did. Many evacuees actually stayed on. Ivy, in fact, went back to London, got married, had her family, and then came back here five years ago to live the rest of her life out here. Oh, wow. She's, again, since tingles down me. So, but it's getting to the character, the heart of the person who is living that story. And, and for example, one of the other evacuees told me, where the Italian prisoner of war camp was in my um, locally here. And it is now a car park. 
And then she said something to me that haunted me. She said, we would hear them singing in the evening. You'd oh. hear them singing in the evening. And oh. apparently they were very pleasant. They came around, they went around the town. They would do jobs for people. Um, I mean, there's little line like that, that throwaway line. We heard them sing in the evening. That's what brings a character to life. Yeah. I find um, I want I want to talk about the house for a minute because I I, I find setting uh, and story to be ab absolutely go hand in hand and and mm -hmm. can't to me you can't get any better than an old house in in England with a storied past. Um, tell us a little bit about tall chimneys and about how you see the the place of of that house in the narrative. Okay, so so setting is absolutely crucial. I tend to write best about settings that I know. Um, we have an old house. We live by the sea. During the virus, um, I researched the house that we live in, and I went through the deeds. And I also talked to other people about their houses and the history and sort of came up with tall chimneys, which was an amalgamation of of real houses and imagined houses. I wanted the view from tall chimneys right at the top yeah. to be near the sea because I wanted to see the planes going over the sea. But the part about the evacuees writing their names at the back of the wardrobe came from something that my sister and I used to do. So our godmother had a holiday cottage in the Isle of Wight, which we loved. We'd go there every summer. And I can remember writing our names at the back on the wall of, of a cupboard. So it's really funny when people talk to me about the process, because to me, it's not so much a process as an, a wonderful coming together of, of things from the past, which I'd forgotten until suddenly they come into my head when I'm writing. The things that just shoot into my head, almost as though... An imaginary hand has put them there. Yeats used to talk about automatic writing with mm -hmm. poet Yeats. And I mean, I, I wouldn't deign to compare myself with him because he's amazing, but it is like that. It just happens. You have, we have, um, when we look at the men in this novel, Elizabeth's husband, Nancy's stepfather, Nancy's stepbrother, this is not exactly a parade of kind and empathetic uh, gentlemen. Can you talk about how the weaknesses of some of these men in the book end up revealing the character and the strengths of, of some of the women? Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? Um, they're not particularly pleasant men, but <laughs> I tried to give them reasons. Oh, yeah. And again, that goes back to character. You, you can't make someone bad without explaining why they're bad and perhaps giving them mitigating factors which might explain why they behave the way they are. So, in fact, Nancy's stepbrother had a very difficult childhood. Um, I need to make them real. I don't want to make them demons for the sake of it. But you're also correct in that I've used them to contrast the strength of women. So um, I'm really interested in strong women. Um, I think we have a line of strong women in our family and many families often do. W women through the years have had to take on all kinds of different roles, especially at times of crises where they've taken on roles that, that they wouldn't have done otherwise. And that's made them very strong. 
Um, in, in the opening sentences of this book, I, I remember being given an assignment once in, in high school where we were supposed to take the opening sentences of a work of literature and talk about how they sort of encapsulated the whole the whole work. Mm. And in your opening sentences, Nancy is talking about a kitchen. And she says mm -hmm. an armory, she describes it as an armory of lethal weapons hiding under a guise of domesticity. And then she goes on to say, isn't that exactly what a family is like? Can you talk mm -hmm. about how that one sentence sort of set without spoilers sort of sets up and encapsulates the whole book yes i can i mean i'll start off by saying that as my family will tell you i'm not a particularly good cook but it is always <laughs> it is i always joke that i i can make five dishes and one of them's takeaway pizza but um i i have i've always been horrified by the fact that a knife rack is is a very common object in the kitchen and um and as a grandmother i'm incredibly careful to keep anything dangerous away from my small grandchildren just as i was as a mother and i actually when i when i thought of that image i really felt that was exactly how I wanted to express a family because families are made up of so many different characters. You feel they should all be alike because they're linked by blood, but that's not often the case, not always the case. So just as you have different shapes of knives, so you can have different shapes of characters in a family. Yeah. You, you used a term to describe Nancy's situation uh, near the beginning of the novel that I hadn't encountered before, but I think I thought it was fascinating. Tell us about this this notion of the silent sentence and why Nancy's concerned about possibly serving a silent sentence. So I have to go back into my background for this. Um, I, I told you that I started off as a journalist. I turned freelance when my eldest child was born. And then when my first marriage broke up, I semi-joke that I went from a woman's magazine to prison. In fact, what happened was that in the same month that my marriage, first marriage ended, my column ended on this magazine because the editor left and through necessity I took a job as a writer in residence of a high security male prison two days a week over three years and that completely changed my writing. I was already published by then as a romance writer. I was what they call mid-list so I did okay. I wasn't up, I wasn't down. Um, when I started working with men, helping them to write because the idea behind it was um, I was employed by an arts charity um, if people write about their lives, it can help them reassess their lives, perhaps become better people, especially in prison. Um, I'm, I'm still involved with it in that I judge a life story competition. And I found my writing changing from romance to families and what it is like for them when crime changes their lives, whether they committed a crime or a loved one committed a crime or whatever. One of the on one of my first days there a man came up to me and he said Jane I need to tell you what I've done and I said please don't because I found it easier to work with people if I didn't know they'd killed someone or done you know. he said no I need to and he told me he was a young lad he was about the same age as my eldest son then and he said that he was going at 10 miles an hour faster than he should have been going when a car came out and he went into that car and the driver died and he said his sentence is not the sentence he's been given in terms of years, but the emotional knowledge and the horror that he has killed someone and he has to live with that person the rest of his life. But then he said, and my mother hasn't been able to get out of the house since. And that really stayed with me. The shame, I'd never thought of it before I worked in prison, the shame that 
relatives feel when their loved ones commit a terrible crime. And I spoke to um, somebody at the prison who worked there as a counsellor, and she said it's known as the silent sentence. And that has haunted me, something that I've wanted to bring in for a long time. Um, in, in the opening chapters, and you sort of mentioned this a little bit already, there, there are lots of allusions to things that happened in the past that the reader doesn't quite know about. We know something happened at Tall Chimneys and other, other items. And I often ask this about, of mystery writers, but how do you balance this, this desire and this need to sort of tease the reader with intrigue, um, but also with not revealing too much too soon, and then also the desire to avoid having the reader be too confused because they don't know what's going on? That last bit is really important, mm -hmm. not to get too confused, which is why it's important to spin it out. I see it as a long piece of cotton wool. I mean, here in, in where I live, when you buy cotton wool, you can buy it in a long strand. And I'm kind of pulling it out visually as I'm talking to you. That's how I see my twists, that you want to put them in gradually. And you don't always know when it should come in. So what I do, I have a little trick. I, in bold, in capital letters, will write down, take in at some point, such and such twist. And when I come back to do the second revision, I will then know the whole story myself and I will put it in the right places and I will lay seeds for that twist, little tiny clues earlier on. So that if someone comes to that twist and think, well, how did that happen? They might go back and then they will see, oh yes, yeah. and. By putting it in capital letters, I can then do a search at the end of my novel for those for that word note. I always use the word note in capital letters. And as I said, that will help me construct. So it's like I will have built the house, but it won't be completed. And in order to work out exactly what, what I want to furnish where in terms of clues, I will go back to my notes. Yeah, yeah. I always think that feel that's important in a mystery to, to be fair to the reader, to, to write it in such a way that Maybe they don't know what's going to happen, but if they do go back, they'll go, oh, okay. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And I completely agree. I read a book once, and I'm not going to name the author, and <laughs> I was so hooked by it. I thought, how is she going to get out of this one? I've already said it's a Sheena. How is she going to get out of that one? And when I reached the resolution, in inverted commas, I was so cross, I put it in the bin. And I've only ever put two books in the bin, and that was one of them. Yeah. Nancy um, is is a wealthy woman. She, it's a situation, wealth is situations many people see as sort of solving problems. And of course, that does to a certain extent. But her relationship with money is a little more complicated than that. Can, can you talk about the role of money, both practically and symbolically in the novel? Yes, yes. So um, art is really important to me. Um, I, I dabble a bit in watercolours. Um, a lot of people in my family do the same. And I often think it's very sad sometimes that both writers and authors don't get the praise and the acclaim they deserve until after they die. And sometimes they don't get it. And, and, you know, sometimes their family gets the money after they die if they're paintings or, or their writing then becomes famous. So Nancy's father had been an artist who'd never really made it. But after his death, suddenly his paintings became valuable. So she inherited, well, she didn't inherit, she got a lot of money from the paintings that she'd inherited from him. 
So I wanted to make two points there. First, that that fame doesn't always come easily to people who are artists. And secondly, that she has the burden of all this money because um, she might well have been responsible perhaps for, for the deaths. Is that money related to it? I mean, I'm not saying that she is. I'm not saying that yep. she isn't, yep. the readers who haven't read it. But that adds something else because having money doesn't necessarily mean happiness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'd like the, the complexity of that, that, that um, the money isn't just, you know, for convenience so that she can run the house or whatever in, in terms because sometimes i do find that in 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 books where uh, a character will have money because it's a plot convenience but here i think there's a lot more to it you know much more and and it goes back again into the tense situation between her mother marrying um someone that her father knew and and the fact as i said that the art side did did not become popular until after her father's death so one of the other things that Nancy's having to deal with, in addition to um, hiding out from the paparazzi, guilt over what may or may not have happened, and and her stepbrother's conviction, and this idea of the silent sentence, um, is that she is not at her job. She is she is away from her routine, and she misses routine. Can you can you talk about the role that routine plays for her, or for any of us really, in in providing comfort? I think it's very strange when you have a routine that suddenly ends. Mm -hmm. um, I've certainly found that on two occasions in my life. You're, you're left feeling very much at sea. And I wanted to put Nancy at sea, literally by the sea. And the other thing, as well as her routine that she's missing, is that you know, she had a she had a relationship. She had a, a newish boyfriend. We know that that she has a problem about trusting men in her life. She had found this man in London, and now she's gone to the sea, and he follows her. And it's not as simple as that. Nothing is simple. <laughs> there are complications. And she has to tell him things about her past, which she hasn't admitted before. And he has to tell her things about his past, too. So it's not just the change of routine she's having to get used to, but also the way in which the change of routine affects her relations with people and the new friends she makes. And when she when she first arrives, she says, I've landed in this terrible nightmare all by myself. And I mm. I, I feel like there is I feel like readers sometimes are drawn to characters who feel isolated. Why, why do you think that that is that we're that we're sort of pulled to these characters who feel that they are all by themselves well i think it's our fear isn't it i think that secretly each one of us is possibly a little scared about being on our own um and yet at the same time we can be scared but we can also learn to enjoy our own company i think that's one of the greatest gifts we can have in life um i do enjoy my own company but i also need my loved ones i think that we are drawn to people who are totally on their own because they've been bereaved or they don't have family or good friends around them and good friends are very important can be more important some might say than family and i think that's tapping as i said tapping at a fear one of the the pleasures that i've had in writing in in multiple timelines two timelines in this case um is that it, it allows you to point out differences and also draw parallels between characters 
So what do you see as sort of the key differences and the key similarities between Elizabeth uh, living in tall chimneys in the 1940s and Nancy in the present day? Well, they're both strong women. They're both up against it. Elizabeth um, is not just up against the war. She has a very difficult husband who was injured in the First World War, who wants his son to go to fight, wants his son to go and do his bit. Elizabeth is worried about about her son doing this. Um, they don't, Elizabeth and her husband don't have a very good relationship. He's He is a bully and he doesn't want her to take in evacuees. And Elizabeth um, is surrounded by people and yet she is on her own. So when the evacuees come down with their teacher and she forms a relationship with the teacher, which is at first very much platonic, then I think we hope for something for Elizabeth. We hope that she actually, she won't be on her own until she discovers, I don't want to give any more of the plot away, I won't yeah. say any more about that until she discovers dot, dot, dot. But, <laughs> but Nancy, Nancy is also on her own and yet she, she goes the other way. So whereas Elizabeth starts with everyone around her and then feels herself becoming more and more isolated, Nancy comes down on her own but makes friends with Vera, learns to trust Vera, meets the girl over the road who, whom she goes swimming with. She expands her network. She finds that this, oh, I've got to the shivers just talking about this. She finds as though she is actually coming home. Yeah. Until dot, dot, dot. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's a, and there's a certain way in which they both are are drawn to this this house itself too, that there's a, there's a yeah. comfort in this space for each of them um, mm -hmm. that connects them across however many years it is. You know. Yes, exactly. The house is a character in itself. It draws people in. It's, it's um, got an agar, um, a <laughs> warm agar, um, which warms the house, which warms the soul. But having said that, she has to do a lot when she gets to the house. It, it's, it's very, um, has, it's very neglected, and all this is part of her building this new life. But houses are so important, aren't they? I mean, yeah. when you think about it, as I sit here in my study, our house was built in the 1820s. Think of the wars that people lived through. Think about the celebrations, the joys, the births, the deaths. Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary. It is. It is. We we have a lot much less of that in the United States, but my wife and I have a cottage in Oxfordshire that's about eighteen hundred or so. And yeah, you know, we often think about that about what exactly. what has happened in this little street in this little village outside our window over the over the centuries. Um, exactly. I know Oxfordshire well. It's beautiful. Yes. Yeah. There there are two kinds of surprises. I feel like in a, in a in a book like this, um, there are surprises that are already known to the characters and then that are revealed to the readers. And then there are surprises that the characters and the readers discover simultaneously. Can you talk a little bit about, about the art of crafting the surprise with, with particular reference to that dichotomy? Well, I could try. The truth <laughs> of it is that it is a kind of magic, as I said earlier. It's, it just comes to me, as it, as it were. I do like it when the reader knows something that the characters don't. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something, and let me change that sentence, that is why I like to write in a dual viewpoint. Because one character, one of the main characters can give clues about the other. So I'm, I'm writing my novel for 2025 at the moment. And 
ne- this year's book comes out by the way at the end of this year I always find quite hard to say this year it's hard to think we've just changed years but the one that I'm writing for next year um the two characters appear completely different from the other in completely different parts of of the country in completely different locations and I want the reader to think how on earth are they going to join together and that's what I wanted I mean with Elizabeth and Nancy it becomes fairly clear after about five chapters that they are joined together by the house. Yeah. Um, but going back to what you've just asked me, that dual framework, that that dual narrative helps me to allow the reader in on a secret that one of those viewpoints is not aware of. Nancy, we, we kind of touched on this before about talking about the paparazzi, but to a certain extent, she is a victim or at, certainly at risk of being a victim of, of tabloid journalism, which we have in the United States, but we don't have anything like what you have in the UK. Right. Do, do, you, do you play with this idea of is there, is there an inherent immorality in the tabloids or is how, does, how do freedom in the press and the right to privacy balance uh in in this novel and for that matter in in the world well i think now nowadays it's quite different i think people are much more aware journalists are much more aware of of playing fair as it were but i remember when i was a fledgling journalist being asked by an editor to quote go and doorstep somebody whose famous husband had just left her which meant going to the doorstep and I was freelance and I was able to say no because I didn't feel that was moral. Um, And I'm very glad that I did that because I think it's it's wrong. But I think that um, I've always been interested in the morality of the press because you can be tarred with the same brush. When you say you're a journalist, there's so many different types of journalists, but you can, you can be tarred with the same brush. I, I, touched on that briefly in my very first novel, My Husband's Wife, which was a Washington Post bestseller. You might remember that back in 2016. And I think perhaps in all my books, I bring journalism into it because that was my craft. That's what I cut my teeth on. And I still write for the Daily Telegraph and certain women's magazines. And I'm interested in how it's changed over the years. Nancy says something that that I find really gets at sort of a very deep question in this in this novel she says all lives should be precious shouldn't they but then she goes on to say but if someone has done something wrong is there an excuse for murder i I think if i were going to make a t-shirt for this book that's the quote i would i would put on the t-shirt without spoilers can you give us some insight into the ways in which nancy and elizabeth struggle morally with that question of when is killing justified yeah, I can. I'm just trying to do, think of how I can do it without giving spoilers. Yeah, yeah. So, so Elizabeth is in the Second World War. What What would you do if you came face to face with the enemy? Yeah. And you knew it was your loved ones or the enemy. You might think that you would protect your loved ones. But what if they are not actually your loved ones? Um, I think the other aspect I'd like to point out with that is when I worked in the prison, people would write their life stories. 
And it was very harrowing for me. I mean, really harrowing. I, I, when I took the job, my sister told me that I shouldn't. Um, a cousin told me to go for it. I had to financially, but I'm very glad I did because it showed me a part of life I had never discovered. I mean, I think I was quite a sheltered mother of three and I learned things I would never have otherwise learned, things that still scare me, to be honest, things that still haunt me. I always say you can take the prison out of the girl. Sorry, you can take the girl out of the prison, but you can't take the prison out of the girl. And people would write about terrible things. And they would also write about why they had done them. And there is no excuse, but it's, it still made me think about why somebody had done something bad. And, and a lot of the time, it was drugs and drink that had precipitated it. And um, I never used to drink very much anyway. I was, you'd have a couple of glasses of wine a week. But when I started working at the prison, I just stopped any kind of drink. I haven't drunk anything alcoholic since I started to work there. There, there are many secrets in the lives of these characters that we can't discuss because we'll spoil the book for for the readers. Mm. And it is, I mean, I will have to say this was this was one of those books that I could not put down. I I read it in a, a day or two. It was just um, um, a riveting read. But there's, Thank but you. I think there's some secrets we can discuss, and I think it would be okay, especially for the benefit of our American listeners who may not know as much about this. If you told us a little bit about the secret army. Oh, yes. Gosh, my, my word. Right. So when I moved down to Devon, I joined a gym and I overheard this fascinating conversation. And I just heard the line about people who burnt their weapons at the end of the Second World War in this massive bonfire on the top of a local hill. So I got off my exercise bike and I said, I'm really sorry. This is an awful thing to ask. I couldn't help overhearing what you said. Why? And so then they told me and... Basically, during the Second World War, Churchill recruited people, often in seaside towns where there was this very strong possibility that, that seaside towns could be invaded by sea, over, you know, it could be invaded by sea, by the Germans using the sea. And he wanted local people to be trained in guerrilla warfare so they could protect their loved ones and the town. And the idea was that local people knew the lay of the land better than armies that had been drafted in from nowhere, that they had a lot to offer. So you might find a woman who runs a boarding house, which was the old fashioned name for a bed and breakfast, which indeed Elizabeth does. She doesn't just take in evacuees. Before that, she ran a boarding house. You might find that people who ran a boarding house, you might find the post office um, workers, you might find a mother, who's used to walking up and down the street with a pram, being recruited to observe what might happen if the Germans invaded, to be trained in the art of using a gun, a dagger, to leave messages. And they were known as Churchill's Secret Army. There were actually several different factions of Churchill's Secret Army, all of whom had different levels of experience. But I wanted to make Elizabeth join the Secret Army. Why would she do that? Well, again, without giving out spoilers, 
when her son goes off to war, she feels she wants to do her bit for king and country. Now, people who joined Churchill's secret army were not allowed to tell their families. They often went to their graves without telling them. And, and in fact, they were given cyanide tablets to take if they were captured by the Germans and they had to sign the Official Secrets Act. Yep. So now here we are in, in, in 2024 and the last members of the Churchill secret army are dying if they have not died already. And quite often you will more, let me rephrase that. I Part of my research, I interviewed a man who'd written a book about Churchill's secret defences, and he said that more and more people are coming to him because elderly relatives are saying things like, well, of course, I was part of Churchill's secret army. And people think they're rambling. They think they've got dementia. Yeah, they yeah. think it's the end of their days. But then, and again, I've got the shivers going through me talking about this. When they've die, died in their paperwork, they might find something that relates to it or else um they will be revealed through this extraordinary list of names which a group of people whose families belong to churchill's secret army have put together so it may well be that readers in the states and canada might have had english relatives who were part of churchill's secret army and there is a website where they can actually find out the list of people who were there, who were there, part of the army. It's just fantastic. I just am endlessly fascinated by what I think of as the the non-military part of World War II, having written a novel about Bletchley and, and oh, we yeah. could go on and on. But I can't wrap up this conversation without pointing out that Nancy and I both have a great love for Leighton House, the house of, of the great um, pre-Raphaelite painter Frederick Leighton in, in London. Oh um, right. And um, it, with its De Morgan tile panels and its its Walter Crane mosaic frieze, I was actually there just a few months ago. And mm -hmm. and she, she loves this place. I wonder if, are there particular places that you go to to draw inspiration, to feel creative, to be inspired by, just by the the, beauty and the artistry of the spot okay so i am really moved by this and this this is going to surprise you i think as well so my great great grandfather was a painter and his name was john hanson walker and he became a painter because his father owned a paint shop in bath and he was a small boy when Leighton came in one day and wanted some painting materials okay and he looked at this little boy and said to his father could i paint him and he did and my great grandfather grew up wanting to become a painter himself. Leighton looked after him. He became Leighton's protege. And my great-great-grandfather um, was often used as a model, as a grown-up, with his wife, um, Fanny. And one of Leighton's most famous paintings is of my great-grandmother on her wedding day. And my sister and I went to see it. It no longer hangs on the Tate, but it's in an outhouse of paintings that the Tate owns. So they weren't, um, you know, they, they, they were just ordinary people. His father yeah. was a painter, but wow. as I said, he, wow. he threw Leighton through that visit. But there is another story behind that in that during the virus, my children gave me this uh, DNA kit where you can um, find out who your relatives are. And it put me in touch with a third cousin related through Hanson Walker's wife's brother, who emigrated to America and Canada. And now Suzanne is a librarian in Seattle. And she and I, um, 
so so they went out to Canada first, but then they went to the States. So Suzanne, who lives in Seattle, and I have have now actually um, become very good friends, and we zoom each other and chat. And um, so yeah, so Leighton House is definitely one of my favorite places, along with the Royal Academy. Yeah, oh, that's oh, what a fantastic story. That's great. I, I I hadn't been there in years, and I was in London just for a week in October, and and went back, and it was oh. it's just spectacular. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us some insight into you and into your writing. So we will begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? Oh my gosh. Um, okay, so what word do I love to, this is, this is a difficult one. Is there a um, smile? I do like people to smile. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? I don't like bad language anymore. I say anymore. I think I've become, um, I feel like that more and more as I get older. Yeah. I don't like swear words. Where's your favorite place to write? Oh, definitely. Top of the house, overlooking the sea with my dog behind me. Very old dog. Where, where could you never write? Um, I don't know. Um, in the bathroom. You could probably never write in the bathroom. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Oh, no. No, I'm a stickler for grammar. Sorry about that. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? Uh, Winnie the Pooh, also Heidi. I was a voracious reader at home. The very first book, probably Winnie the Pooh. Oh, no, no. Um, Wind on the Willows. So yeah. many. Yes. What are you reading now? What am I reading now? I have just read, and I'm bowled over by it, um, All the Broken Places. What book would you like to have written? All the Broken Places. <laughs> what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Okay, so I've been thinking for years of writing a children's book. And if I don't do it very quickly, my children, grandchildren are going to be too old. Yeah. So, um, children's book. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Something that some people have already told me, that it's helped them rethink their lives. Hmm. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And my guest today has been Jane Corey, whose novel Coming to Find You is available wherever books are sold. Jane, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Alex Michaelides about his new novel, The Fury. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Music